Thank you so much. It's good to be back for the 15th Founders Week in which I have had the privilege of participating. And that leaves out the one in 23 when uh, I told some of them a while ago the speakers were Dr. Torrey, Dr. James M. Gray, Dr. Gresham Machen, and William Jennings Bryan. I uh, do know that a lot of water's run under the bridge since those years began, especially this last year. We have had a year. We've had the BUI bicentennial. We've had a star-spangled bonanza. We've had a swine flu snafu. And Jimmy Carter's gone all the way from who to who's who. And now we've got the weather. But whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be hot, whether the weather be good or whether the weather be not, whatever the weather, we'll weather the weather, whether we like it or not. (laughs) We've had a lot of bad news through this year and a lot of mudslinging and muckraking and heroes of the past from Paul Revere on down have been smeared and great men of recent years dead and unable to defend themselves have been the subjects of books revealing their reported escapades specializing in scandalizing is mighty poor business I don't intend to get mixed up in it it rubs off on you never pays you're wrong even when you're right A bulldog can whip a skunk any time, but it's just not worth it. But thank God I like to be in a place where we're majoring on good news. The gospel is the good news of an event in history when Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification. And that good news has been denied and it's been defended and it's been declared and what it needs most is to be demonstrated. The best argument for Christianity is a Christian. There's nothing distinctive about the average church member today. They've lost their identity because they've lost their identification. They're lost in the crowd, assimilated and amalgamated and homogenized and meshed into the mass. There's a time for the declaration of the gospel. Paul said, I declare unto you the gospel. There's a time for the defense of the gospel. Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. There's a time for the demonstration of the gospel. And Paul said, Christ liveth in me. That's the best way to demonstrate it. I'm sure that if I started out selling hair tonic, which I do not intend to do... I would immediately be asked to have you tried it. And if I said no, then they'd say, well, I think you ought to try it before you recommend it. 
And if I said yes, they'd say, well, then it doesn't work. (laughs) Now, the gospel works, but the world needs to see it work in you and in me. You have the word Christian only three times in the New Testament, as you know, I'm sure, and it's a mark of identification each time. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. They were identified with a person. A Christian is a person in whom Christ lives. There's only one Christian life that's ever been lived, and he lived it, but he lives it over again and again and again. And all who invite him to make himself at home, as has been suggested already here today, in their hearts. And then you remember that Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. A Christian is identified with a persuasion. He's persuaded that God is able to keep the deposit that he's made. That nothing can separate him from the love of God in Christ. And knowing the terror of the Lord, he persuades man. He's a persuader because he's been persuaded. Then he's uh, identified with the persecution. If any man suffer as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this behalf. All that will live godly, all, not some, not most, all, who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And to the extent that we are identified with him, the person, and with the persuasion, and with the persecution, to that extent do we uh, demonstrate the gospel. The word Christian is a noun and an adjective both. We say so-and-so is a Christian, that's a noun. We say he's a Christian man, that's an adjective. We need more Christian Christians, more adjective Christians, who are what they claim to be. If we are the light of the world, and if there are as many Christians as the church statistics would indicate, then with that much light, why is everything so dark? If we're the soul of the earth... Why is everything so corrupt if there are as many as the church statistics would indicate? There's something wrong with the demonstration. Too many candles under the bushel or under the bed, and too much of the salt has lost its savor. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that power is demonstrated by the Holy Spirit. You remember Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones, bones, body, and bread. That's, uh, that outline just falls right out of that passage. Uh, Dr. Phillips said the church today is so prosperous that it's fat and out of breath and so organized that it's muscle-bound. A church may have the bones of sound doctrine and organization. It may have the body of a big membership. But if the breath of the Spirit doesn't blow, it's a congregation of corpses. Church at Sardis was like that, and it had a name to be alive. A mortician can make a dead man look better than he ever looked while he was living. And some church experts can do that with churches, but they're nonetheless dead. Too many people assemble at God's house and don't really believe in the power of God. I heard of a boys' school where every morning before classes began, the youngsters were supposed to recite the Apostles' Creed. Each one was given a segment of the Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, and so on down the line. And one morning, they were getting along pretty well, and all at once there was a dead stop and a profound silence. And then a boy spoke up and said, 
The boy who believes in the Holy Ghost is not here this morning. I'm afraid that's happened in a lot of church prayer meetings these days. No wonder so many services started at 11 o'clock short and into 12 o'clock dull. I heard of a pastor who met one of his delinquent members down the street and said, Well, <clears throat> I haven't seen you at church much lately. No, he said, You know how it's been. The children have been sick and then it's rained and rained and rained. The pastor said, Well, it's always dry at church. Yeah, he said, That's another reason why I haven't been coming. <laughs> Well, it ought not so to be. We are dealing with divine dynamite, and I believe that every service ought to be of a sort that everybody who comes will get a charge or a shock. They get a blessing, they'll go out charged. They may even go out mad, but anything's better than nothing. You ever hear, how many of you folks ever heard Billy Sunday preach? Well, I know the crowd's spinning out, but I knew there were some of you here. Did you ever hear Billy describe the average weekly W-E-A-K-L-Y weekly prayer meeting? So it starts 15 minutes late to begin with. Can't find anybody to play the piano. Finally, some dear sister feels moved upon to play the piano. <laughs> Takes her about five minutes to get to it, another five minutes to find the song. And I stand up and sing, throw out the lifeline. They said they haven't got strength enough to put up a clothesline. <laughs> and then the leader gets up and says, I'm sorry, but I haven't had time to prepare anything. Billy said, didn't need to say that. You could have told you hadn't prepared anything after he started. And then they stand and sing, day is dying in the West. <laughs> said that's not the only thing dying around in that part of the country. Now, that may be a little overdone, but, beloved, it's not far from the mark in many an assembly today. When we study the original Genesis and the genius of Christianity, one thing stands out. God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. The way he demonstrated his plan and purpose, and the way he set it up, and the circumstances of it, utterly contradict our sophisticated ways of staging great events today. If we had been on the Committee of Arrangements, think how we would have planned the coming of the Son of God. Why, who would ever have suggested him coming as a baby born in a stable in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire? We would have had him brought to earth, full-grown, to lecture in Rome and Alexandria and Athens. And at twelve in the temple, what a chance he missed, being known as the famous boy preacher. How a modern publicity agent would have exploited that. What a break for the news media that would have been. And with the whole world to save, why did he spend thirty of those precious years in a carpenter shop? He could have visited the known world in all those precious years. And when he did start out, his brother said in John 7, Why don't you go up to Jerusalem, get out of the backwoods, get up on the boulevards where they can hear of you, not handling your publicity right. He said, The world can't hate you because you belong to it, but me it hated, because I testify of it that its works are evil. When that demoniac was healed and wanted to join the evangelistic party, Jesus said, No, you go home and 
tell them what God has done for you. Now, what a chance they had to take this ex-demoniac along. Think of what an attraction he would have been. Ex-wild man. We'll be at the next meeting. And when Jesus performed a miracle, he sometimes said, don't tell it. He performed miracles but didn't advertise them. We advertise them and don't perform And when he chose the twelve disciples, why didn't he convert twelve rabbis? Start at the top. Instead, a band of non-entities with the smell of fish and the taint of tax collecting and no pedigree and not photogenic, twelve rookies, we wouldn't have looked at a second time. And when he rose, why didn't he appear before Pilate and Herod and say, All right, here I am. What a tremendous moment that would have been. And in those precious 40 days, the greatest news scoop of all time, why didn't he call a press conference? Think what TV could have done with all that. But instead, he only says to a weeping woman, Mary, and at Emmaus he breaks bread. And on the side of the Sea of Galilee, he said, throw your net out on the other side of the boat and you'll get some fish. What a, what a strange way to start out the greatest movement in all history. And when Paul came to Corinth from Athens, the center of worldly wisdom, his mind was made up to preach the foolishness of God, the gospel which the world calls moronic. That's where you get the word moron from, the word used in that passage. And that made Paul a fool for Christ's sake, because if you are preaching a gospel that is to the world foolishness, that automatically makes you to the world a fool. And we have practically forgotten that in a day when preachers are tempted to make themselves acceptable to the age instead of approved unto God. There's never been a culture since Christianity began in which a Christian could feel at home. Now, if you feel at home in this setup today, that's where you belong. Birds of a feather flock together, and if you like it in that life, that's where you are. There's a great danger today of trying to demonstrate the gospel the way this world demonstrates everything. And having begun in the Spirit, we may try to perfect ourselves in the flesh. I think maybe one serious ailment is indicated, beloved, in Psalm 119.54, where the psalmist said, Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. We're pilgrims and strangers and exiles and aliens, and this is the house of our pilgrimage, and we have a song. We've been lifted out of the miry clay, and our feet put on a rock, and a song has been put in our mouths. What is that song? Thy statutes. What a strange turn. Statutes made into songs, one never associates those two things. But God's law book is also a song book, and his mandates are also his melodies, words and music, theology and doxology. And today the danger is that in our vast religious establishment with its vaunted statistics and its wheels within wheels and its paraphernalia and its promotion and uh, all the appendages, the mountain labors and brings forth a mouse. And one is reminded of that old maid who worked in a home where everything was elegant and the crystal and the silver were perfect, but they didn't have much to eat. The food was rather poor, and she said, the trouble here is, 
There's too much shuffling of the dishes for the fewness of the vittles. And I think we have discovered that today, a time and again, in the church. But thy statutes have become my song. Some time ago, I saw some TV uh, artists uh, taking uh, postgraduate lessons from Heifetz in violin and Pablo Casals in cello and uh, Segovia in classic guitar. And when this young cellist played, I said to myself, well, he doesn't need any more lessons. My, my, anybody who can play like that. But when he finished, Casals, who, of course, is now gone, said to him, you're playing the notes, but not the music. Now, that'll do to think over. I wonder sometimes today if even in fundamentalism and conservative Christianity, if we haven't the statutes and have lost somewhere the song. The Jewish exiles in Babylon, Psalm 137, you remember what their captor said, sing us a song of Zion in that case. But today they're saying to the church, just sing us a song, any kind of a song. Now, of course, Babylon is the professing church taken over by the world. I think that most Bible scholars, regardless of their positions on eschatology, pretty well agreed that Babylon is the world in the church. And we're captives in Babylon today, and we cannot sing the Lord's song in a strange land. They're saying, sing us one and entertain us, and the church has gone into the business. And we think, well, anybody that's been brought up in this generation with Jesus Christ Superstar and the Exorcist and the Omen and now Roots and what have you, church is going to look pretty tame on Sunday morning. So we've got to do something to get in step, and we're doing it. I'm in some churches today where I could close my eyes and think I was in a nightclub. And uh, Ernest Hemingway said very uh, truthfully, we are deluged today with writers who can't write and actors who can't act and singers who can't sing, and they're all making a million dollars a year. Some of this music is by some poor fellow who doesn't know any more about music than a billy goat knows about Beethoven. They talk about the top 40. I'd sure hate to hear the bottom 40. <laughs> Dr. Nelson Bell said, and I wish he were around to say something more like this, it is my opinion that should our Lord enter one of the, quote, worship, unquote, services now being uh, contrived for you, with their offbeat and frenetic music, nightclub atmosphere, flashing of lights and slogans, and the emphasis on psychedelic art, he might well wade in and say, take these things away, my house shall be called a house of prayer, you've made it a house of psychedelic emotionalism. Have you listened to some song leader in some meetings, revival meetings, trying to bring out a song that wasn't there? In their hearts. You see, what's in the well will come up in the bucket. And if the song isn't there, it's not coming out. And there's no melody in the heart of the Lord. In the first place, there's no melody. And it's not in the heart. And it's not unto the Lord. I remember years ago, in a service where the dear brother, bless his heart, sort of a whirling dervish, 
singing power in the blood. He said, now we're going to have four powers in the next verse, and then six powers in the next verse. And by the time we got around to six, pow, 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 could have shut my eyes and thought I was listening to gun smoke. Dear old Clovis Chapel went to one of these meetings, that grand old Methodist preaching, and the excited young fellow, and thank God for song leaders, I've been preaching for 63 years, and I, I, I started back listening to Charles M. Alexander and uh, uh, lead when Wilbur Chapman was preaching, and uh, Harry Barrowclough, who uh, wrote Ivory Palaces, playing the piano, and I've been down through the years. And, I've had every kind, I suppose, in the meetings from that young fellow so excited who got up and said, Now when I open my mouth, everybody fall in, please. We've had everything. But uh, Clovis Chapel got to one of these meetings where the young preacher thought the crowd needed waking up, and it did, but he said, Now, everybody over here, shake hands with five people down this line, five people over here on this line, and so they went, and the place was in the ferment, and Clovis Chapel said, you might as well try to boil water over the picture of a glowworm. <laughs> and even in the stiff formal churches, and of course today we've swung all the way from St. Vitus to rigor mortis. <laughs> in vain we tune our formal songs, in vain we strive to rise. Hosannas languish on our tongues and our devotion dies. Statutes, we've got it, we've got it right theologically. But there isn't a song, words but no music. But oh, what a great day it is when the church regains her song. Think of the Wesleyan revival. Christianity was at a low ebb. Somebody said the Puritans had all been buried and the Methodists hadn't been born. Well, that was at our time. But uh, I remember a motto I saw some years ago, the lowest ebb, E-B-B, the lowest ebb is the turn of the tide. That's done me a lot of good because I've been at some pretty low ebb in the last few years and uh, some of the experiences of life, and it, it has been the turn of the tide again and again. And then here came John Wesley preaching the gospel and Charles Wesley Singing the gospel, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. I'm a Southern Baptist in our hymn book, and I told them about it between eight and 10,000 preachers ten days ago out in Fort Worth. Our hymnal has left out of that wonderful song my favorite verse. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. I don't know whether somebody thought some Baptist might take that literally. But I think the possibility is so remote that he doesn't need to get worried about it. And then when D.L. Moody went to Scotland, and they had a church fuss going on over there. They called it the disruption in those days. But the lowest ebb was the turn of the tide, and it was said of D.L. Moody that he set to music a tune that was haunting thousands of ears. The churchmen had been arguing the notes, but Moody brought the music. Oh, I don't mean he did. He couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but Sanka had the little organ and they did it. And in Scotland and in England and in America, the statutes became songs and cold theology became warm doxology. What made the difference? Well, the Scotsman said it's easier felt than tell. 
It's what L.P. Jacks meant when he spoke of the lost radiance of the Christian faith. It's the joy of salvation that David lost. It's the first love that Ephesus left. And without it, it's art without heart and light without heat. My preacher, brother, if your sermon has no song, all that the listeners will get will be laryngeal sounds beating on eardrums. A Stradivarius in the hands of a master can lift you out of this world. But in the hands of a backwoods fiddler, all you hear is horsehair scraping on catgut. And what makes the difference is the touch of a master's hand. The greatest mission field in this world is the average Sunday morning congregation. Sardis had a name to be alive, but Sardis was play-acting, and the more we seem to be what we are not, the smaller our chance of becoming what we ought to be. It takes a lot of hard work to keep up an illusion. Don't you ever think that it's easy to be a poser and to have a name to be alive when you don't have it? So busy that we never have time to be what we ought to be. The Pharisees spent their time posing, and it takes hard work to be a successful poser. Laodicea was a warm church, but don't you forget that my Lord said, I prefer a cold church to a warm church. Isn't it better to be a warm church than a cold church? No. I would that you were cold or boiling, hot, but not lukewarm. The trouble about being lukewarm is that if you're cold, your very coldness may drive you to the fire. But if you're just warm enough to be comfortable, you are insulated against any feeling of your need. We need to come to a boil today. Zealous means boiling. What our forefathers were without knowing it, we want to know without being it. And so we play the notes, not the music and the statutes we have, but not the song. And we're putting on a performance and we don't have an experience. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune. This is a musical uh, song. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. I'd like to testify tonight to the fact that in all these years of preaching, when I was 30, I had lost my song. I hadn't done anything terrible. There was no moral mark against me, but I'd lost my song. And people began to ask, whatever became of the boy preacher who started out at 12? And one day I came across a poem, and I've never been able to find it since. I've had people looking for it. If you know where it is, tell me. Two little lines in it that gripped me. How sad will be the days in store when voice and vision come no more. That got me. I went back to my old home in the hills. You see, I, I, World War I was over and new thought was coming along and uh, we were going to make the world safe for democracy and world peace and all the rest of it. And then there came the Scopes trial and Clarence Darrell and Brian, and it's a pretty good mark of the times we're in today that this present world applauds Clarence Darrell. 
and ridiculed was William Jennings Brown. I went back to my old home in the hills. My father had died a little disappointed. I wasn't turning out so well. He left the grocery store. And my mother and I sat there the winter through. Somebody robbed the store and burned it down. And God spoke to my soul and said, If you'll get some of these new notions out of your head and go back and preach what you preached when you were a boy, I'll make a way for you. So I got out of the novelty shop and got back in the antique shop. God started opening the doors, and I've never lacked for a place to preach from that day to this. He gave me a new message and a new mission and a, a precious mate for 33 years over America. And then three years and four months ago, I had to learn a still newer song. Sometimes your best song comes in your darkest hour. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out in the Mount of Olives. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. He giveth songs in the night. Many a rapturous minstrel among the sons of light will say of his sweetest music, I learned it in the night. And many a rolling anthem that fills the Father's throne sobbed at its first rehearsal in the shroud of a darkened room. When I got my new message, which was my old message, and I started out again, God put me through a test. I remember preaching through the state of Iowa one summer, and at Creston, Iowa, went to bed and couldn't sleep a wink, next night couldn't sleep a wink, and for two years... I suffered from nervous exhaustion, and I learned not to laugh at nervous people. I learned what it means. And then God called me to begin this ministry, and no doctor would ever have told me to go into this kind of work. Sleep in a different bed every week, couldn't sleep in any bed. And I said, it doesn't make sense. And I, I prayed and prayed for guidance. You know, guidance is the easiest thing in the world to preach about and the hardest thing to get sometimes on what you ought to do. So I finally said, Lord, I'm going to make the venture, and if I'm wrong, stop me. That was nearly 39 years ago. And uh, I started out, my first date was to be at Mel Trotter's Mission in Grand Rapids. And I headed north January, and any southern little head for Grand Rapids in January, while well, you know he's ailing a little bit. <laughs> I got as far as Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> Came down with the flu, and they put me in Augustana Hospital, and the devil sat on the foot of the bed and said, Now what are you going to do? <laughs> got no church, and you can't preach. But God remembered, he knew my frame, and remembered that I was dust. I'd been invited to Florida Bible Institute, and I turned them down, and uh, I wired and said, I'll come. The doctor said, get out of here and get back to the south. I went down there and met two remarkable people. One day, a long, lean, toe-headed fellow came up to me, a student, and said, I'm Billy Graham from Charlotte. And then a little lady took pity on this poor, sick preacher. You know the way to a man's heart. 
she prepared soup and things that I could eat, and she would put it at the door and tap gently and get away before I could get the door open. She had faith enough to start out with a half-sick preacher who didn't have any money much and didn't know whether he could do this or not. She hadn't been so strong herself, but God was with us. And we never cracked up for 33 years. I say this because if you get in a place where you don't know what to do, you give God the benefit of the doubt. God will clear the track. And then I had to learn three years and four months ago when God took her home. And I couldn't understand that. Uh, Sid Lowe Baxter was with me ten days ago in a conference. He said his wife had been healed recently, and she was quite ill last time I was with him in San Antonio. Well, God does heal, yes, thank God, but not always. Didn't heal my Sarah. She died at 2.15 on Sunday morning, and I preached at 11. I didn't know whether I could or not. But I took for my text John the Baptist's question that he asked of my Lord, and what follows? Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus sent word back and said, Tell John that I'm running on schedule. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed. And then he added what I call the forgotten beatitude. You don't know this one. We know all the others, but nobody knows this one. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Blessed is the man who never gets upset by the way I run my business. And I said, Lord, I don't understand it. I thought we'd have a sweet old age together, and now here I'm left like I started, but you know what you're doing. And I wrote a little book. And I have never in all these years had such a response to anything that I've ever written. There's not a day that goes by. Hardly a day ever passes. And some dear soul in bereavement, sorrow, and trouble writes, You know, I started up here in July. Speak at Moody Church for a big meeting they were to have that night. Got sick on the way. The time I got up here, I said to Brother Wearsby, you better get a doctor. And he got the doctor, and the doctor said, you better go back home. So I had myself a nice round trip to Chicago, just up here and back. The doctor even took me over to the airport. And all my wonderful friends and those that are maybe listening in now, I never had so many precious notes and letters from folks in Illinois and in Michigan and Indiana and Ohio. They were going to Winona Lake next week, and of course I missed it all. They put me in the hospital, and I don't know yet what was the matter with me. I said, well, it could be one day flu, and it could be a touch of tomain, and then that good old word, that rug, they sweep everything under. It may be a virus. <laughs> but if you sent one of those cards, I don't have a secretary. I, I was snowed under. But from my heart, I say thank you for remembering me. And I want to say, beloved, that God has added a new dimension and a new note to my preaching. And I have become a chaplain to the lonely and a comforter to the brokenhearted. I went out to a great church in Texas two years ago and I got there. The, uh, the senior adults were having a conference, single adults. 
And they said, talk about loneliness, because that's our greatest problem. We've never had more loneliness. We've never had more amusement and entertainment than we have today in America. We've never had more lonely people. And last year ran a record for suicide among teenagers. We're lonely. You see, I'd had the statutes all the time. I believed it, but I I didn't have the song. I lost it. And how this world does need compassion. My preacher friend, don't stomp on sinners when you go out to preach. And, uh, oh, my Lord didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Bless God, He didn't come down here to rub it in. He came to rub it out. Tell them that. Well, how do we get this back? Second Chronicles 29, 27, when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began. You won't have any song in your heart till the sacrifice is on the altar. The sacrifice of penitence, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. The sacrifice of person presents your bodies, the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's the divine order. Now, in a congregation of this size, there's always a certain percentage of preachers and Christian workers who have lost their song. It isn't that you don't believe what you've always believed. And you're the last one to find it out. Your wife may know it. The church may know it. And you don't know it. And some resign and some become resigned to such a state that some seek God's face until they are re-signed with the stamp of God. Now, if you're playing the notes and not the music, and if you have the statutes and not the song, don't go out to crack jokes over a stake tonight. Get alone and stay until God gives you a new song in the house of your pilgrimage. Phillips puts the last half of Ephesians six twelve this way. We are up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. We're facing a demonized world. And the only way to meet that demonstration is with a demonstration of the Spirit of God and of power. You remember old Elisha, what a man he was. He was a good man to have around. He could uh, start up a new uh, water supply in the city, find lost axe heads, put a widow into the oil business. He was a one-man CIA. Every time the king of Syria made a move, old Elisha had a hotline to heaven and found out about it. That king said, we got to get that preacher. So they sent the troops after him. And Elisha's servant came out and looked around, and there were soldiers to the right of him and soldiers to the left of him. Here a soldier, there a soldier. Everywhere a soldier. And he ran back in and said, what are we going to do? Elisha said, don't be afraid. There are more with us than they that be with them. And I think that old servant must have said, well, I don't see them. Where are they? And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And when he did, there were angels to the right of him and angels to the left of him. Here an angel, there an angel. Everywhere an angel, because the angel of the Lord was encamping round about them that feared him to deliver my friend, if you're going to look around at what you see on television, reading the papers, may the Lord have mercy on you. We've had a lot of books on demons in the last few years. I got to where I wanted to look under the beds at night. 
I'm glad Billy Graham wrote one about angels. We need to get our sights up and see the angels. They're around. We need to get our eyes cleared up. You can't be optimistic with a misty optic. Get your eyes open. And when you do, why, even the statistics, thank God, are on our side. That's what Elisha said. The more with us, may it be with them. I think of that captain whose little band was completely surrounded by the enemy and his subordinate officer said, Oh, they've got us this time. We're completely surrounded. And the captain said, Good. Don't, don't let one of them escape. That's the attitude I think that we ought to take today. I have a preacher friend who says every time I hear Walter Cronkite saying that's the way it is, I feel like saying no, Walter. That's just the way it seems. Careless seems the great avenger. History's pages but record one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. That's the way it seems. But that's not the way it is. That's not all of the poem. But that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. That's the way it is. Let me say this to you older preachers tonight. I find that when we get older, we're in great danger of getting to the place where we say, Well, I've had it. There remaineth no more land to be possessed. I'm going to coast on through to retirement. You're not looking for much to happen, and it won't if you're not looking for it. May I say to you, I've had my three score, ten, and a five-year bonus, and I'm supposed to be sitting around in a rocking chair drawing my Social Security and reminiscing about the good old days that weren't so good. I've got more open doors today than I've ever had in all these years. I say it to... Raise some hope in your heart, too. And one of my prayers is Psalm 71, 18. Now, Lord, when I'm old and gray-headed, forsake me not until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Some of you are not as young as you used to be, but you can have snow on the roof and still have a fire in the furnace to the glory of God. Don't give up the battle. I'm having the time of my life. I don't know how I make it. I don't have any secretary. Don't have an organization. Don't have any foundation except the one that's laid by faith in his excellent word. Don't have any magazine. Don't have any TV. Don't have any radio outlet. Never been on drugs. You can still make it just preaching. <laughs> and I watched a few nights ago Leopold Stokowski at 94 conducting symphony and Rubenstein playing the piano at 90 and my dear friend Robert G. Lee at 90 still going around preaching. And we've got a preacher down the mountains of North Carolina. Do you know how old he is? 105. I'm going to have a picture taken with him one of these days, and then they can say, now the younger man is Dr. (laughs) 
Oh, don't retire till God retires you. Or I should say till he promotes you. His servants shall serve him there. I've worked all the time down here. I don't want to sit around on a cloud plucking a harp all through eternity. I want to do something. Thank God there's all kinds of speeds. Three speeds in the Christian life. Mount up with wings as eagles. That's high gear. Run and not be weary. That's intermediate. Thank God you can walk and not faint. There's grace for all gears. And even your youth can be renewed as the eagles. And you can have a rally in the last inning and win the game. I'm on my way home, and I'm going to finish my course, and I pray it may be with joy. I was down in Hampton, Virginia, at that wonderful black college down there a few years ago, preaching to between four and five hundred black ministers. Oh, I never had such a good time preaching in all the days of my life. I nearly preached myself to death. (laughs) Because I had help. I could preach pretty good to white folks if I got any encouragement. Most of And uh, the last song they sang, and I, I was silly enough that I didn't have my recorder along. I'd give anything in the world if I'd recorded it. That great throng in that lovely church. Farther along we'll know all about it. And I sat over there and patted one foot and just bawled. I didn't cry. I bawled. Because I'm going someplace. Years ago, I helped a young Presbyterian minister in a meeting in Narberth, Pennsylvania, and he has since become the pastor of the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian in New York. He wrote a book with a title that fascinates me, Home Before Dark. I think that's a terrific title. And it reminds me that when I was growing up in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, no matter where I went in the afternoon, it was understood as a little boy that I was supposed to be back by sundown. We didn't discuss it, Father and I. We didn't do much dialoguing back in those days. <laughs> well, it's been a long time since then, and I'm at the other end of the road now. And I find myself praying, Lord, I want to get home before dark, before I lose my faculties. I was with a dear preacher not long ago who had been pastor of Tremont Temple and used to be such a rugged specimen. And when I saw him, I'm afraid that my face registered my shock. I tell you, we can get in pitiful condition before we leave this world sometimes. And I think of those precious lines that dear Dr. Culbertson liked, and I, this is just part of it. Lord, when thou seest that my work is done, let me not linger on with failing powers, a workless worker in a world of work. That's been my prayer. And then I'd like to get home before dark. Lord, don't let me make some big blunder right at the finish, because you're saved, but you're never safe as far as your testimony is concerned till you get home. And you can make one on the last mile of the way, and they'll all remember the big blunder you made and forget all the good things you did all the way back up the road. Anthony Eden died the other day. What a magnificent man he was. What a great statesman followed Churchill. Had so much in his favor, but he, I suppose, made an error of judgment in the Suez affair, and everybody says, yes, but there was Suez. And then I want to get back before darkness settles on this world. Beloved, the lights are going out everywhere. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. 
the darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. The famous short story writer, O. Henry, who lived in my hometown of Greensboro, said as his last words before he left this world, I don't want to go home in the dark. I don't know what he meant, but in a different sense, I think, I can say I want to get home before dark. When I started out as a boy preaching, Father went along, and then when I got old enough to go by myself, he'd meet me at the little railroad station in Newton, North Carolina. I can see him standing there by that old Ford Roadster. That old blue serge suit hadn't been pressed since the day he bought it. When I'd go up to him, the first thing he'd ask me would be, How did you get along? It's been a long time. One of these days when my train rounds into Grand Central Station in glory, I think he'll be there, not in the old blue serge suit, but in the robes of glory. And I wouldn't be surprised if the first thing he'd say would be, How did you get along? And I think I'll say pretty well, and I owe a lot to you for it. And then I think I'd say, You remember back in the country when I was a little boy? No matter where I was in the afternoon, I was supposed to be back by sundown. It's been a long trip, Dad. But here I am, by the grace of God, and home before dark.